And now, Father, we come to your word. We pray that uh, we might open our hearts and minds to what you have to share once again. And may we apply it to our lives in a practical way, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you'll take your Bibles, would you turn with me tonight to the book of Esther? The book of Esther. <clears throat> and this, this book, uh, the Lord just laid this one on my heart. Um, our family went to see Esther at Sight and Sound. We were blessed to go there. How many of you were, did get to see it? Anybody here? Got to see Sight and Sound? Yes, the Esther up there. But the, this little book, Tucked Away, is one of the two books that is named after a woman. Anybody know what the other book is? Yes, of course. Very good. Uh, Esther and Ruth. Again, what is unique about the story of Esther in this book? Well... Somebody, somebody must know. I'll let you tell me. Okay. What is missing from this book of Esther? Right. The name of God. We do not find the name of God anywhere in this book, which is remarkable. So what is it doing in the canon? Why is it in, considered part of the scriptures, a story like this. I read, and I can't recall exactly what, was, uh, what, what they said about it, but both Calvin and L- Martin Luther, John Calvin and Martin Luther would not preach on this book. They, did, they, they felt that it shouldn't be in the scriptures. And so... And a lot of people don't, haven't preached on it because where is God? But I, I felt led to go here because I think what this story, well we, well, we will see the historical context of why this book was placed here. Because it concerns the Jewish nation and almost their annihilation. But God spared them. But I think this book of Esther, and then, of course, we will study her character as well. But this book, it basically, I think, tells us about the sovereignty of God and God as being invisible. And so we read this, and we don't see God's name anywhere and so anybody reading this, if, if someone who didn't know the Lord, didn't know the scriptures, came and just read this story, they'd say, wow, that's, that's, that's an amazing story if it's true, you know. But, but the wonderful thing is, God is hidden in this book. And I want us to be able to see his hand at work throughout all the circumstances we're going to be studying together. And so uh, I pray that... that we will gain much insight, understanding into God's sovereignty and God's provincial care over his people. And then, of course, we apply that to the church, to the believers uh, under the blood. 
that we are under his sovereign care. So uh, we will, let's begin, look at verses 1 and 2 together. Now it took place in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days, as King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne, which was in Susa, the capital. You might have a translation that says Shusan as well, the citadel, but uh, it's known as Susa, the capital of Persia. And so here, what, what do we know about him? Well, at this time, uh, Persia was one of the greatest, it was the largest empire of its day. It had the, it covered, it, it, it controlled the most ground all around. It was a vast empire and uh, it, it, it was a time that uh, this, the country of Greece was gaining strength. And so the glory of Greece was getting stronger. And of course, we know from history that Greece and Persia went to battle. And, and Hazarus here is one of the kings that was planning to take over Greece. So he kind of initiated it, took his armies and went after Greece. But of course, it was a doomed effort. We all know the story of the uh, passage of Thermopylae and the Greeks and the miraculous victories that they won over the Persians. But here, they are a great nation at this particular time. Okay, so we, and and one other thing to remember as this king, uh, Hazarus, sat on the throne. Uh, the name he is known by in history is Xerxes, Xerxes, and that that is the common name that is used for him. Uh, but Xerxes here, or Hazarus, uh, he was reigning uh, during the time that Ezra took. Uh, it would Ezra had already taken. A group from that had been had sent back, uh, been allowed to go back to the land to rebuild the temple, as you recall. And so, Jews had left Babylon, Persia, and they went back. When when Persia and King Cyrus took over Babylon, conquered them, then he was led by God to send a remnant back to Israel to rebuild. He allowed that, as you recall. But some of the Jews did not want to go. And sometimes uh, I, I, when, when I read this story, I forget about that, that, that these Jews that were left behind in Persia, they had a chance to go back to their homeland, but they said, uh-uh, I like it here. This is too nice. We got, we got everything we need here in Persia. Why would we go back to that forsaken land and try and rebuild it so uh but here again this is a time between the return to rebuild the temple and then 40 years later nehemiah would return uh to the land to rebuild the walls of jerusalem so that's where we are but then now look with me at verses three through nine let's read these together 
in the third year of his, of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his princes and attendants, the army officers of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of his provinces being in his presence. So all the who's who of Persia was there. Verse 4, and he displayed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of his great majesty for days, for many days, 180 days to be exact, 180 days to be exact. And when these days were completed, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days for all the people who were present in Susa, the capital, from the greatest to the least in the court of the garden of the king's palace. And there were hangings of fine white and violet linen held by cords of fine purple linen on silver rings and marble columns and couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of potpourri marble mother of pearl and precious stones. Boy, he's really getting descriptive about this, isn't it? We don't know who wrote this book either, but how descriptive of, of, of the, the, um, the incredible wealth that this king had. Verse 7, drinks were served in gold vessels of various kinds. And the royal wine was plentiful according to the king's bounty. And the drinking was done according to the law. There was no compulsion. For so the king had given orders to each official of his household that he should do according to the desires of each person. Many times at a banquet, uh, a person who was attending the banquet would be forced to drink. You had to drink wine. In, in, in the ancient East like this. But he flipped things around and he said, well, everybody can drink what they want. They can have as much as they want, but I'll, I'll leave that up to them if they want to drink. So he's living, leaving it up to the desires of, of everyone else. So how amazing when you just read this and try and envision what this banquet had to be like. What's the longest party you've ever been at can you recall one day right and one afternoon maybe morning and evening uh new year's eve party how about a 180 day party well that's what this was and so and what does he now want to do uh king xerxes wants to show off he wants to show off all his glory and all his wealth do you recall a king who did just that and it caught, brought him great trouble? Jim, I see you nodding your head. Who would that, who are you thinking of? Solomon. Yes, Solomon. Remember? Thank you, Jim. Solomon, you know, he got full of himself and he looked at all that God gave him and blessed him with and he got proud. He got proud and wanted to show it off. And of course, uh, Queen of Sheba came to check it all out. And he began to show everybody into the, all the treasury and everything else. 
And of course, later that would cost him. Oh, how pride can, can bring us down if we're not careful. <clears throat> and I think this is something that for all of us uh, to take heed to, that uh, when we, God blesses us with any kind of wealth, or any kind of material blessings, uh, uh, you know, or maybe he's blessed your, our business or, or our work and other things, that it continue to grow, bank accounts, you know, uh, great, and uh, it, it can be so easy to suddenly allow pride to get in and want to tell everybody else, look, look what I got. You know, it's like the little, little kid that after Christmas goes to the kid at school, look, you want to know what I got for Christmas? And they compare. Oh, how easy it is. Although we might guard our hearts but look at verse 9. Here comes his, here now the story turns to his wife, the queen. Verse 9, Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the palace, which belonged to King Azarus. So this basically, this was, uh, this banquet by the king was kind of a men's only banquet, okay? But Queen Vashti was having the ladies' tea and having her own banquet, so to speak. She was she had her own going on, and this is where it gets interesting because there are d- different feasts that we see here. We we see the first feast. Uh, that King Azarus had had put on. Then he had a seven-day feast after that, and now Queen Vashti has her own feast and banquet. So the king gets this idea. Okay, look at verse 10 with me now. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine... By the way, what do you think that means, merry with wine? (laughs) Yeah, he was probably drunk. But it, it was making him happy. But he was merry with wine. And when his heart was this way, he commanded Mahuman, Bistha, Harbona, Bigtha. When I see Big Bigtha, I think of Big Bertha, the golf club. I don't know why, it just pops into my head. I love golf. But anyway... Uh, Abagatha, Zethar, and Carcass, and the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Azarus. And what did he want to do? He commanded them to bring, verse 11, bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the princes. For she was beautiful. For she was beautiful. Have you ever heard the term a trophy wife? Have you? Yeah. Some some men uh, get married to a certain woman uh, who is absolutely beautiful just so that they can show her off. Look what I found. 
look who loves me. And then they want to make sure that they go everywhere so everybody can see how beautiful, what kind of wife he, he won over. And that's basically what the king, where the king is going with this. Suddenly, he's thinking of his wife, and, and here's his banquet with all these guys, and now he wants to show off his wife because of her beauty. So he wants her to put on a crown and get over to the banquet. Ladies, if you, your husband, all right, put yourself in Vashti's shoes, okay? Uh, what would you do? If you, you, she no doubt sensed what she was being called for, just as to be shown off like, like uh, you know, a display. And that would probably upset some of you ladies if your husband decided, hey, come over to the men's, men's group here. I just want to show you off. You know, that, that would be hard. Many women would not want to do that. And the queen felt that same way. And look at verse 12. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. Then the king became very angry and his wrath burned within him. That's it. Here goes the husband and wife quarrel that basically she says no I'm not coming Uh, men have you ever gotten upset with your wife because she said no to you of course not no you always been oh that's fine honey yeah whatever you say no this this guy he's king what he says goes and especially in under Persian law And if you study the Middle East, even today, of course, you read it in the newspapers and online and other news articles, how the women are treated over in the Middle East, that they're basically second-class citizens. They're pretty much, it's a man's world over there. And man calls all the shots. And so this takes the king back. He cannot believe what he is seeing and hearing about his wife refusing to come. You know, turn to Ephesians chapter 5 with me for a minute, okay? Let's go to Ephesians together. And how we can apply this to today, to us, Ephesians 5.21, uh, 5.22 and familiar passage of husbands and wives. What does Paul say about the relationship between husbands and wives? Well, he makes it clear, and this is God speaking through Paul. What does he say at verse 22? Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is what? The head of the wife. As Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. You don't hear that much preached on, do you, today? No, they, you know, most think that, well, the 
are you kidding me? You know, we're equal. But see, this many don't understand what Paul is saying when he uses the word subject. It means to honor the husband as the position that God gave him in that home, that the man has the position of authority. You know, I, I, I kind of look at, it, look at it this way as we look at the Trinity, right? Question, are God the Father and God the Son equal? Yes, they are, right? But yet, who is the Son submissive to? The Father. The Father's will. You hear that? And we're studying that Wednesday night in our men's Bible study that, that you know, Jesus constantly, when he was praying, uh, he was seeking his Father's will. And he would say, this is what my Father, the words you hear from me are the words my Father gave me to give. In other words, he was obedient to the Father. And yet they're both God. So I see that kind of, that's the way so God gives us a picture of that in the home, in the family. Man is supposed to be that, that headship, but only in position that God gives them, gives him. And then the wife is equal, but, but is, you know, the man should ha- be allowed to have, according to God, uh, they, they make decisions together. But if the man is a godly man, then... Uh, allow him to make a decision, the final decision, but you do make it together. But the rest of it, uh, of course, verse 25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. What do you see here in that verse? Jesus wants to show off his bride. Isn't that amazing? That in the spiritual sense, Jesus wants the world to see his beautiful wife. His beautiful bride, the church, you and me. And he wants us to to, uh, show the world who he is by the way we live. Notice that the husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And Christ sanctified the church, cleansing her by the washing of water with the word. So that, this is his purpose, that he might present to himself the church. That he, that bride one day, in heaven, there's going to be the marriage supper of the Lamb. There's going to be a marriage. It's going to be between the church, the bride of Christ, and the Lord Jesus himself. That he might present, himself to, the, present to himself the church in all her glory. In all her glory. And that's kind of a hazardous. That's what he wanted to do with his wife. And we're told as husbands, this, how should we treat our wives? We should love them. And if we love our wives the way we ought to, as Christ loved the church, you know what happens? The wife will desire to honor 
that husband who loves them as Christ loved the church. And so that honor and reverence and respect, which means is, you know, wrapped up in that being submissive, is something that the Lord Lord desires in the home. But it's interesting here, I just wanted us to see this, that Jesus is like, is acting with the church like Hazarus is acting with his his wife. He wants to display her. But of course, Jesus has the love for the wife, but we don't see any love from the king here. So if you'll turn back to Esther chapter 1, Let's go back, and we read there in verse 12, then the king became very angry and his wrath burned within him. So he's really mad at his wife. How dare she say no? Verse 13, then the king said to the wise men who understood the times, for it was the custom of the king so to speak before all who knew law and justice and were close to him. And then... I'm not going to read the names again. There they are, the seven princes. <laughs> but there, there they are, who had access to the king's presence and sat in the first place in the kingdom. According to law, what is to be done with Queen Vashti? Because she did not obey the command of King Hazarus delivered by the eunuchs. Now, <clears throat> these were, the princes were basically saying this to the king. You know, what about the law? She did not obey. She, she did not obey the king's command that was delivered to her. Verse 16, and in the presence of the king and the princes, Mamukin said this, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but also all the princes and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Hazarus. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, causing them to look with contempt on their husbands by acting, I'm sorry, by saying King Hazarus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought into his presence, but she did not come. Basically, you know, it's like women's lip. They're, they're afraid of women's lip going on here. And all of a sudden, the women rise up, and, uh, and they're going to start telling their husbands, hey, no way, you know. And so verse 18, And this day the ladies of Persia and Media, who have heard of the queen's conduct, will speak in the same way to all the king's princes, and there will be plenty of contempt and anger. So look what they're, they're, they're pushing. Particularly this one prince, Mamukin. Verse 19. If it pleases the king, let a royal edict be issued by him, and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, so that it cannot be repealed that Vashti should come no more into the presence of King Azarus and let the king give her royal position to another who is more worthy than she. Verse 20, And when the king's edict which he shall make 
is heard throughout the kingdom, great as it is, then all women will give honor to their husbands, great and small. So they laid it out nicely before the king, didn't they? So look at verse 21. And this word pleased the king and the princes. And the king did as Mamukin proposed. He liked this idea. Yeah, he's saying, man, my wife just slapped me in the face and said she wouldn't come to my banquet. And now, uh, yeah, you're right. What, what would happen? Other ladies are going to look at the, uh, you know, um, the, the first lady, you might call her, right? And how, do, how she acts, and she can act any way she wants. Well, we can't have that, and so it'll be a bad example. So he agrees. Verse 22, so he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province according to its script, and to every people according to their language, that every man should be the master in his own house, and one who speaks in the language of his own people. And, of course, it is then that Vashti is exiled. Goodbye. You're not queen anymore. And so now he's going to look for a new queen. So how do we wrap this up? And what can we bring out of chapter 1 tonight? Well, turn to Daniel chapter 2 with me. Daniel 2. Daniel chapter 2, verse 21. 221. And here's what Daniel said after God revealed things to him. And it is he, God, who changes the times and epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. You know what you could put in there? Queens. He also removes queens and establishes queens as well as kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. What is he saying here? Daniel is saying, God is in control of his universe. And God is in control, according to this, he's in control of every leader that was ever put in place in history. He put them there, and he also took them down, both good and evil. And the evil ones that he allowed to reign, of course, they would, they would uh, be judged one day. But yet God, in his sovereignty, was working his will and plan out for the world so that his son, the Lord Jesus, in due time would come to be the Savior of the world. But this, this story is so crucial to understanding the sovereignty of God and God's providence over our lives. He's in control of your life and mine. And if he wants to remove a believer from one job to the next, 
He'll do that. God is in control of our lives. If we are at a point where we submit to his will and understand that, Lord, what you choose for me is is your will and it's best, even though it doesn't look like it's the best for me. There's something, there's a reason why God has allowed this. There's a reason why Vashti said no. It all, this whole story hinges on the queen saying no to her husband. Because then unfolds the whole story where we see God is moving the pieces and he's going to bring out this beautiful young orphan girl named Esther. And she is going to come on the scene and God has a great plan for her life and to use her to save his people from being annihilated and destroyed forever. The sovereignty of God. And we won't have to take time to turn to it, but turn on, uh, you look it up yourself, Romans 13, where the Apostle Paul talks about government and authorities and how God is the one that puts governments in position and that we are to obey the authorities. But again, Paul makes it clear, God is the one in control of all the nations. Isn't that comforting, by the way? It is to me. When you look at the world and you look at what's going on between nations, you see the war between Russia and Ukraine and all that's going on. Guess who's sitting on the throne still? Our God. He's sitting on the throne and he is controlling things even though things look out of control. But he's going to bring about everything for good according to his will that will culminate with the coming of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that wonderful? Let's take that home with us. God is sovereign and in control of your individual life as well as the nations. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for this marvelous story that you've tucked away in in your word, Lord. The story of Esther, Lord. But how, Lord, your hand is seen in every movement, in every act, Father, that you would bring about your purpose and plan and protect your people. Father, may we never forget your sovereign power and how you control all things and you are in control of our lives, whatever it may be. Father, help us to trust your sovereign hand. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.